Hey, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. We are delighted to have you. We've actually been in this message series called Beautiful, Disappointing, Hopeful. And we've been talking about how these three words describe the Christian story, but also in many ways describe the human experience uh, that we go through. And uh, in previous weeks, if we've been talking about how um, Christianity hopefully is a viable way of seeing the world and moving about in the world. And we've really been asking these two questions. Is Christianity true? And secondly, is Christianity compelling? Because really, only if it's true and compelling is it something that's worth following, especially for each one of us who have so many different options of worldviews to believe in and things to put our hope in. And hopefully through this series, we've been exploring how Christianity um, makes a case for what is true as well as what's compelling. Now, we've been talking about when it comes to these words, beautiful, disappointing, and hopeful, there's different practices then that can be a response to the way that God created the world to be beautiful, that we can be a people that's filled with gratitude. Um, and that's, that's what marks us. And that when it comes to the disappointments in life, that we're also people who grieve. So it's not only we're people who are just happy, happy, joy, joy, um, but instead we're people who navigate between both beauty and disappointment with gratitude and grief. And today we're going to be talking about this word grace. And what does it mean to be hopeful and to be a gracious person in the world that we inhabit? Now, like I mentioned, um, we live in a world of both the tension of beauty and disappointment. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've had different couples who have gotten engaged in our, in our church, as well as babies that have been born over the past couple weeks. And yet, at the same time, there's the ongoing conflict that happens in Israel, in Gaza. Uh, there was a hospital visit that I made this past week. So in the midst of life that's both full of beauty and disappointment, what it means to be a human being is you are also someone and I'm someone who's experiencing how in the world do we make sense of the world that we inhabit, especially when it comes to beauty and disappointment. Now, the Christian vision for how do we live is basically hopefulness and grace, that we are a people that are both hopeful. And what does it mean to be hopeful? It means that we move about in a manner of grace. Now, where does this come from? Um, There's actually a word that's been around throughout centuries, and it's the word theology. Now, theology actually comes from the root word theos, which is God, and logos, which is logic or reason or account. Uh, Now, of course, whenever we say like biology or zoology, the study of animals or study of life for biology, um, theology is the study of God. Now, can you imagine just how intimidating that is, the study of God? Now, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that God revealed himself through the scriptures through his written word to us, and then Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, who's also called the word of God in the Gospel of John. And in so doing, Jesus would talk about the scriptures, and as a result, the scriptures are what we believe about the revelation of who God is. And so it's from the scriptures then that we have this theology, this understanding of who God is and how we can follow this God. Now, there's two different ways that theology can be categorized or learned about. The first way is through systematic theology. Now, systematic theology... Um, You can take a word, for instance, like the word grace, and here's what systematic theology does. If I take this word grace, then I'll look up throughout the scriptures. Where is this word grace used? It's used in Ephesians chapter 2. It's used in Romans chapter 3. Wherever grace is used, and from those different verses, what will happen is it'll bubble up into one definition about what grace is. Now, there's another way of, uh, of, of coming to terms with some of these um, theological definitions and, and so on, and it's biblical theology. Biblical theology is actually looking at the story of God throughout scriptures and seeing how God continues to reveal grace in the lives of the people of God. 
And, and so today, the way that I thought we could go about talking about grace is not by simply saying, hey, here's what the Bible has to say about grace. There's so many different scriptures about grace. But actually to look at a story, a revelation of God's heart and his disposition towards his people. Uh, and it's a story that Jesus tells in a parable, a parable which is a story that has an underlying spiritual truth. And so here's where the story begins. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. I'll actually stop right there. Now, uh, I actually grew up in a setting. Uh, I'm Korean-American, so my parents immigrated from Korea to Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles, moved here when I was 21 years old. Um, and which was 2001, so I've been here, you do the math, and how old I am right now. And so, um, but growing up in a Korean family, uh, it's very, um, the values are very much about family and about honor. In fact, if you know anything about the Korean language, there's actually a different way that you address elders uh, than other people. And so the people like peers or those younger than me, you, you speak in just kind of regular colloquial language. And yet there's another way, another category of speaking to an elder. So you could imagine like there's this honorific culture that's baked into the culture. Uh, some of you parents are like, I wish I was Korean. Uh, now here's the thing. Like in the ancient world, it was very similar. There was respect for elders and families meant so much in terms of who you honor and the way that you honor. Now, here's what's so incredible about this statement, that right off the bat, Jesus punches us in this face with this one little statement. It's that the younger son goes to his dad, and normally an inheritance is given to a son or a daughter. When is it given? It's after the father dies. And so there's something incredibly out of order and improper about the way that this son, he brazenly is going to his dad and basically saying, Dad, you are dead to me now. Give me my share of the inheritance right now. Now, a part of me, I'm like, I'm shivering just thinking about that. The reason why, again, because again, it's baked into me. Honor for parents. Honor for those ahead of you. No one would dare say that. So I, as I was just reading this, I was thinking, what would it look like if I were to say this to my father? And I realized my dad would probably, he would scoff at me. I mean, if I were to say, Dad, you are dead to me. Give me my share of the inheritance. He would say, you weren't going to get an inheritance in the first place, buddy. Like, like I was going to give it to your three brothers. Look at how ridiculous you are. Or my father would have just been like, what? What are you talking about? He would have yelled at me, maybe even smacked me. Actually, he probably would have. Um, I've talked about how my father can be a violent man sometimes, right? Like there's all sorts of things, responses as I think about this, just how brazen this moment is. Or growing up in a shame-based culture, this is probably what my father would have done if I would have said, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. My dad would basically be like, you ungrateful, all, after all I've done for you, I came to this country with nothing. And you, what have you done with your life? How dare you speak to me that way, right? Thrown in a little bit of that shame stuff. Some of you are like, Drew, you know that very closely. Wow, that hit home, right? Like that shame-driven kind of manner. Now, here's what's equally stunning. Not only is it stunning, the brazenness of this younger son who's basically able to go to his dad and basically be like, you are dead to me. But look at the response. So he divided the property between them. That's all it says. The father is meant with this affront 
And what does he do? He says, okay. I'm letting you go. Now, that's a stunning revelation of God's heart. Stunning. Some of us, when difficult things happen or when we're angry at God, we wonder, God, you put me through this. You're the one that's orchestrating this. And yet here we see this image of God, this portrayal of God the Father, who actually honors each one of us and honors you and me and will not force anything, will not shame you into anything, will not headlock you into anything, but instead, he lets his son go. Now, this is stunning, not only for that culture, but it's stunning for the world today. Now, look at what happens in the story. It says, Jesus continued, uh, or not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and you know where this story is going, don't you? Set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, now a few weeks ago when we were talking about suffering and pain, we talked about dirty pain, which is the pain that we experience versus because of the poor choices that we make. Every single one of us has dirty pain because every single one of us, we make mistakes. We're sinful people at times. We make decisions that we regret and we pay for that. This is dirty pain. But look at what it says. And then there was a severe famine in that whole country. That's clean pain. Clean pain is the mysterious suffering that comes to all of us as human beings. So this man is hit with a double whammy of both dirty pain and clean pain. And look at what it says. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, the, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He is absolutely desperate. He comes to a place where he knows that he is in need. And look at how the story continues. When he came to his senses, I love that description. He comes to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He realizes his brazen rebellion against his father. He's like, I can't even ask to be welcomed back into the family. Make me like one of the hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. You could, you could almost hear his growling belly in the midst of the pain that he's in. When he came, look at what it says. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, this is an unbelievable portrayal. Well, first, it says while the, the son was a far, far off. So as a result, the father somehow had been waiting for the son. So yes, the father had let go of the son, but the father was waiting, waiting to welcome him home. Now, one of the clues that different scholars have talked about in this passage is just how incredible and undignified the father's response is. You see, back in those days, for any man of repute, 
what they, what they would do is they would have their robe on. And of course, if they have a robe on, they would never in an undignified way run because running would require hiking up one's robe and running and trotting across. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're wearing like a suit or something, um, and, but you're late and you're gonna miss the train or something. And have you ever had this experience where you're like, you're running a little bit and feel a little bit self-conscious because I'm wearing like this suit, I'm supposed to be fancy. And then uh, I realize I'm really late. Then I'm in a full out sprint. Um, this is a Poor illustration, but it's just think the, the father felt a fraction of that, okay? <laughs> like that feeling of being undignified. And what scholars have pointed out is that it is so uncouth for this father to be running this way. And yet the, the text actually describes a father who is willing to be undignified and run after his son. And look at what it says. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, in the midst of his son apologizing, he said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. A robe and a ring were signs of being welcomed back into the family. He's a son again. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I mean, do you see the picture? The picture of a son who's been so broken by life, so desperate, finally decides to come home. He wants to apologize just to be a hired servant again, and yet... Yet his father actually overwhelms him with his gracious love. After such out-and-out rebellion, the father's arms are wide open and full of grace. Now, again, as I was thinking about kind of like a shame-based culture, I realized, as I was thinking, like, how would my father probably have reacted to this? If I had come to a point where I started wandering home, my dad, first of all, if he saw me a long way off, he'd probably go inside to just, like, stew a little bit. And then finally, when I would get maybe halfway to him, what he would probably do is he'd be like, hey, come here, come here. And I would, of course, sheepishly be like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to get it now. And I would basically come forward, and then... My father, he'd probably be like, come on, come on, go faster, move faster. Finally, I'd be running a little bit faster. And then he would also have like a robe or a blanket or something. And this is probably what my dad would have done. He probably would have taken the robe. And like when he got close enough, he'd get close enough to me. He'd wrap me in the robe and basically be like, hey, hey, did anyone see you coming? Because honestly, like I told everyone that you went to math camp for a year. And like, like. You, were, you brought so much shame to our family. I told everyone that it's because you were studying really hard. I mean, that, that's generally how my family, because shame and honor for my family was so important. And what's so crazy and so brazen, equally brazen about the Father, is how lavish his love is. Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, one of his final paintings was this painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son in the 17th century. And in this painting, Henry Nouwen, who's actually a Dutch theologian and Catholic priest, uh, 
Henry Nouwen, when he first saw this painting that was in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, he was so taken by it that he would spend hours just staring at this painting and reflecting on his own life and journey. And he takes the time to actually reflect on the painting, especially the way the younger son is depicted, tattered in clothing. His head is shaven somehow. Perhaps there was lice or something that caused him to have to cut his hair off. His cloth cloth is tattered. He's on his knees. He's been absolutely broken by life, full of soot and grime from feeding pigs. And he reflects on his own journey, the ways in which he feels unpresentable to God, like he doesn't measure up. And he reflects on the father, though, the father whose hands are on this son, who is probably so undeserving of any kind of love and grace. And yet there are the father's hands. One of the things that Nowen notices is the right hand is actually drawn a little bit lighter. And in such a way, it's drawn to depict hands of tenderness and softness and compassion. And the left hand of the father is, written, is drawn a little bit darker, and the left hand of the father is drawn in such a manner to, to signify the, the firmness, the holding of a son who has come back home. This, my friends, is a picture of what the Christian good news has always been about. It's this word, grace. That no matter where you've been, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter your past, no matter how dark and deep your life might feel, how lost you might perceive yourself to be, no matter how much shame you might carry into the room today, you can always come home. And there will be a father waiting for you, ready to put his arms of tenderness and his arms of holding and of strength around you to welcome you home. This is the message of grace. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by yourselves. It's not what you have done. See, so many different religious systems around the world, but even irreligious systems, it's all merit-based. And we know this in a city like this. It's based on how well you perform, how much money you make, what school you came from, what industry you work in, how great you are, how many people you follow you on social media. There are all sorts of measurements that exist in the world of how you can be accepted and loved and good enough before God and others, and yet here is the most inclusive, radically, exclusively inclusive message of God, is that it's not based on what you have done or what I have done. It's based on this word called grace. Grace are the hands of a father who welcomes the wayward son home. See, but that's not the end of the story. Check this out. Look at what it says. It says, meanwhile, the older son, oh yeah, that's right. There's two sons, aren't there? The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. 
and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And look at how the older brother responds. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Oh, man. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, any parents use that before? Don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. (laughs) Who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Scholars have noted that this story can more rightly be described as the prodigal son's. See, it's not just the son who went wayward and was brazenly rebellious against the father. There's also a son who's outside of the house, who's also lost. He's lost. And if you can see this painting, now one reflects then on the painting of the son who's depicted in the painting on the right, the son who's cold and harsh whose eyes are downcast, whose back is stiff and judgmental and harsh and self-righteous. He's from the Upper East Side. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, This is another lost son. And here's what Jesus reveals. See, there's different kinds of lostness. There's a lostness of someone who, of course, the world would even condemn the way that they are so brazenly rebellious. But there's another kind of lostness. It's the lostness of pride, of haughtiness, of thinking that I'm better than other people, of thinking that I am more self-righteous than others. And what's so fascinating is this son has not left home. The son has done everything right. And yet the son is just as lost. He's lost because he thinks he's better than everyone else. He is self-righteous. He is judgmental. In many ways, Christians, we can even hide behind our religion to simply be arrogant jerks and jerkettes. We can be a people who are lost in pride, look down on other people. And what Jesus is doing as he's talking about the prodigal sons is he's talking about Two kinds of lostness. Some of us, we are saddled with shame this morning, and others of us, we are saddled with pride. We think we're better than other people. We think we're better than our kids. We think we're better than our parents. We think we're better than those people out there from those other areas. Here's what's stunning. Look at the story. It says, my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The beautiful heart of God is that his love, despite whatever lostness we might be experiencing today, his lostness still moves. Your lostness, God's heart of compassion and grace and love still moves towards you all. Here's what Nowen writes when he reflects on the older brother. Look at what he says. 
He says, the elder brother compares himself with the younger one and becomes jealous. But the father loves them both so much that it didn't even occur to him to delay the party in order to prevent the elder son from feeling rejected. I'm convinced that many of my emotional problems would melt as snow in the sun if I could let the truth of God's non-comparing love permeate my heart. See, the father heart of God continues to move towards both the younger sons as well as the older son. Some of us, again, we are so stiff, judgmental, and harsh. Perhaps there's unforgiveness that's been lodged in our hearts. And what if today the love of God is chasing after you to melt your heart again? Uh, This past weekend, we had a marriage investment weekend. And uh, later I realized this. Actually, Dave Jennings and his wife, Cindy, were there. They've been married for 38 years, everyone. 38 years. Amazing. Well done, Dave. I should say well done, Cindy. And uh, yes. And uh, what was interesting was I later realized that the, the instructor was younger than they've been married. Now, there was this moment when all the guys were meeting and Dave was just saying, he was, he was offering this, you know, just sharing with others that were in the room. He said, you know, I, I've learned that I can learn from anybody when it comes to learning how to love people better. And I thought to myself, I want to be able to say the same thing, to constantly be in a place where I can hopefully have a humble, loving presence to be someone that's so full of love that I, I don't need to be defensive or harsh or offensive towards others or overly judgmental or critical, but what would it look like for me to have my heart melted in such a manner? Now, one of the things that now, and if we put that painting back up, one of the things that now, and as he reflects on his journey as the younger brother and then his journey as the older brother, someone who is proud and haughty, and what he talks about when he says, he's, he talks about the goal of Christian maturity because each one of us, whether we've had the experience of the younger son or the experience of the older son, either way, God wants us home. And the task of spiritual maturity is actually becoming like the father. He would find himself in the painting that the lighting was most pronounced and most prominent on the father. Because the story is ultimately about a father. A father whose eyes and warmth and embrace, whose strength and courage and presence is a healing presence. And the task of Christian maturity is that each one of us then become fathers and mothers who display that same kind of warmth, embrace, courage, and kindness. See, here's what living hopefully means. Living hopefully means that we are a people who have received God's grace. We swim in this grace. We come to the table again and again. We recognize that we are more sinful than we dare to believe, but we come back again. We come home again, and God's arms, the Father's arms are always open wide. And there are some of us who are too proud to come back in, and the Father chases us still. Some of us, we are so caught in our pride and unforgiveness and bitterness. And today, what God wants to do is melt your heart. And the same pursuing love of God is there for you 
to welcome you and beckon you home? What would it look like for us to be a people who are so filled with grace, so secure in God's non-comparing love? What would it look like for us to become the most gracious people in the city? That when it comes to the ways that we live our lives, the way that we handle our money, could you imagine if the, the reputation of Christians wasn't, oh, they are so judgmental and into themselves, but what if the reputation of Christians, the reputation of our church, the reputation of the church at large was those Christians are incredibly gracious people. They're so secure in themselves, secure in their belovedness. They treat one another like family, and they're overly gracious in the way that they respond to the world around them, in the way that they use their money, in the way that they're kind in their workplaces and homes and in their families. What if that was the reputation of Christians, that we were a people that brought healing hands and feet and hearts to the city. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Drew, the last thing I wanted to do was come for like some sort of like command to try to be more gracious. You know, wait till you come and work where I work or wait till you come and see what my family is like. I know. Now, here's the thing about the Christian story. Again, so many religious systems are about, hey, Pick yourself up. Do this on your own strength. Be better. Be kinder. Be more gracious. See, but the Christian message, like I mentioned, was always all about grace. And here's what grace means. It's all about God and not about us. And if it's all about God, then here's where the disposition of our hearts come in. See, the disposition of our hearts need to be rooted not in ourselves and what we can do and be more gracious, But instead, it's always rooted in first being captivated by a God of incredible grace. Check out what the author of Hebrews writes when he writes to the early church. Look at what he writes. He says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what does that mean? See, the author of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus would actually be a brother to the people. A brother that, unlike the older brother who stands aloof and condemning, looks downcast upon the the son as well as the father, wondering, why in the world, dad, are you doing this? See, Jesus is is the older brother who actually would go searching for the younger brother. And do it in such a manner that Jesus would come into the world and die on a cross. Demonstrating the extent of just how committed and pursuing and loving God is for you and for me. Despite whatever kind of lostness we may have experienced. See the good news of the Christian faith. Remember it's all about God It's that we might be captured in the story of the prodigal sons that however wayward or lost we might be, there's a God in heaven whose love for you has always been true and his devotion for you and his pursuit of you has never been more real because this Jesus would come and pursue you as the true older brother to live and die on your behalf, to set you free and to bring you back home. And the question is, will you come home again? Will you receive this grace? Will you allow the grace of God to melt your heart to come home again? There's this acronym 
called grace that I once learned, and it's this, God's riches at Christ's expense. Here's what grace means. It means that because of what Jesus has done, we get to celebrate, be welcomed home as wayward as we've been, as proud and bitter as we are when we make the decision to come home again. Because of what Jesus has done, we get to party. We get to be welcomed home. We get to be told that we are loved. We get to be held both tenderly and courageously and strongly. Will you come home again?